We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Alison Larkin, writer, comedian, narrator, and host of The Jane Austen Podcast. Join me as we embark on a journey through Austen's timeless stories, starting with Pride and Prejudice. The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Good day, good people. This is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Radish Jam Podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. We are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on this lovely December day. The holidays are uh, barreling down upon us like a train through the tunnel. I don't know about you guys. Uh, I feel like I have most of it under control, and then I look around at all the things I need to do and realize I don't have anything under control. So, this is both my favorite time of year and a little bit stressful. I assume it is like that for everybody else out there. And we're just back from a couple short weekend trips. You know, we went down to Philadelphia uh, to meet some riders there. And then we headed down to New York City for the first time since before all this pandemic madness. It seemed like a good idea to make those at the time. And then, of course, you know, you take five days out of the middle of your week. And to come back and I'm like, oh shit, like there, there are more presents to be done and I got to clean my house and all these kinds of things. Got to get ready for a couple little family visit trips. So I hope that uh, you guys are, are maintaining stress maybe a little bit better than we are here. And uh, if you need a distraction, we have a great one today because the amazing Ari uh, Anovar is here. And she's talking about her book called A Girl Called Rumi, which is out right now. And she's really fantastic and kind and sweet. And these are the kind of interviews that I love. And, and actually, probably for around the holidays with the stressful season, like we talk a lot about anxiety and mental health. And, and a lot of her work is around trauma and helping people sort of de-escalate things. And she's just a lovely person to talk to. Uh, she's the founder of Rumi with a View, which is dedicated to building music and poetry bridges across war-torn and conflict-ridden borders. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Teen Vogue, The Washington Post, Newsweek. She's the author of Rumi's Gift Oracle Cards and A Girl Called Rumi, which, like I said, is out right now. So you can imagine this conversation is going to... Uh, deal with some hard subjects and she's just so like I literally honestly could talk to her all day and she is one of those like soft-spoken people who make you lean in when you listen right like you just sort of find yourself being pulled into her as she tells stories so I think you're going to enjoy this today uh it's a really important conversation and uh and book before we get to all of that, you know, we got a little bit of business. So the jam comes out every Wednesday and our video series comes out on Mondays and Fridays, although we'll be a little truncated over the holiday. 
So there's a couple things you can do to help us help authors. The first thing, I want you to think about the book lovers in your life and tell them about this show and what we do. That's the easiest way for us to grow this audience. Second thing I need you to do is leave us a review. If you're on a Apple phone, head on over to Apple Podcasts. You can leave us a written review and a star review. If you don't, if you're like the rest of us, head on over to the Facebook page, The Writer's Jam, and you can click on the review button and leave us a testimonial there. Uh, if you're looking for books, head over to thewritersjam.com. We have book reviews up and a bookshop link. So you can click right there and support local and independent bookstores across the country. Sign up for a monthly newsletter and support everybody on the ever-growing Solid Listen Network by clicking on the Patreon button and you'll get commercial-free episodes and bonus content for just a couple dollars a month. And Christmas, I keep saying it, but Christmas is the time to check out uh, Mother May I Sleep with podcast because it is all Christmas all the time uh, and this is a fun time of year to experiment if you are not already listening to the other shows on our network. So I want to thank you guys for stopping by. I know it's a busy time. I know that you got lots of options out there to fill that time as you're cleaning and cooking and doing all the holiday stuff. So thank you. I hope that things are going well for you. I hope this holiday season is bringing you light, love, and laughter. And I hope that you will sit back for the next hour or so and enjoy my conversation with Ari Anavar. I'm in San Diego, California. Oh, man, it's beautiful there. It is. Yeah, they call it the air-conditioned city because it's always the perfect temperature. And where are you? I'm in Pittsburgh. How long <laughs> have you been in San Diego? Uh, since 2008. Oh, so you've been there for a while. Mm -hmm. What <laughs> took you there? The weather. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Yeah. The, uh, I lived in Texas, as, as I mentioned, and it yeah. was so, um, it would get super cold in this, in the winter and super hot in the summer. And the summers would last, you know, nine months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be 105 degrees, 80 days in a row. And yeah. I was just like, that's it. So I moved to, to Colorado and that's where I met my oh. husband. And we didn't love the weather there either. Um, I mean, I love to visit. I love the colors and, and the rivers and the creeks. But but yeah, San Diego is, is uh, definitely um hits is this the sweet spot for for the for my weather um yeah. liking and i do miss fresh water but that's it yeah well and like D denver or colorado is great but you gotta love mountains in 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 winter like otherwise like that's yeah. rough and like i lived in texas for 10 years and i felt like when i left to go to graduate school at berkeley it had been 100 degrees 100 days in a row and like the news would lead off in the evening with like six people died today of heat stroke. I was just like, that was just what the TV was. And you're like, uh, I feel like Texas is just killing people. Like just yeah. being in the state is, is hard in the summer. Yeah. And it's only going to get worse. unfortunately. Yeah. 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 And like my front yard, uh, I, I had a tree died. So I didn't have a tree in the front yard. So I told people like, I just raised dead grass. 
Like in the summer, you're either watering your grass three times a day, which felt really aggressive for the environment, or you're like, welcome to my uh, brown grass. Yeah. Yeah, we've done zero scaping in our yard because of the same thing and because we're in such a drought situation. I, Whenever I wash uh, my dishes, I save the water and I water plants and stuff. Yeah. We're, I'm always wondering why we can't bring uh, floodwaters to here because other places flood. I mean, we have all these oil pipelines and yeah. everything that pollute and, and destroy the environment. Why can't we just have similar infrastructure for pumping out uh, flooded areas? Yeah, because I'm guessing get... because that doesn't make money. Exactly. If I know if I know America, I think yeah. we know the answer to that question. Yeah, <laughs> Exxon. Just short short term gains always yeah. trump the uh, any kind of you know long term. Yeah, benefit. yeah. Despite everybody talking about, I want to leave a place for my grandkids. I'm like, eh, do you though? Like, do you really? Because it, it doesn't seem to be uh, high on the priority list of things that you're trying to do. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you're in San Diego now. Where are you originally from? I'm from Iran. Oh, what yeah. part? Shiraz, where the um, it's the city of poets and wine. The wine is famous <laughs> and there's a Shiraz grape that um, ended up in Australian wine cellars, I guess. Yeah. Um, and uh, be, after the revolution, the, the 1979 Islam revolution, which the Islamists took over, wine was, um, it became illegal. Yeah. Music and dancing became illegal. Um, a lot of poetry became illegal. So, so the city of poets and wine was just bereft of what, what made it what it was. Yeah. That had to be, how old were you? Were you, were you there when that happened? I was, yeah. So I was six years old and all of a sudden women wow. couldn't ride a bicycle or sing in public. And, uh, you know, dissidents were, there was a lot of crackdown on dissidents. There was no freedom of speech or expression. Bagamon, which is our, one of our favorite pastimes, that became illegal. So we just all of our civil liberties started getting stripped away. And people protested, and they were met with uh, great force, batons, pepper spray, and uh, they were taken to jail. My neighbors, um, my neighbor, her, his, their daughter was 16 when she was executed, so they were executing children too. And uh, and then you know this is like within months of the Iranian Revolution, the. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein attacked Iran and started a war that lasted eight years and took oh, millions of lives. You know, if you consider what the collateral damage of war yeah. is, it's not just lives lost, but families destroyed, habitats destroyed, you know, the great cost to the environment, waterways poisoned. Yeah. So um, jobs, everything. And so during those eight years we were that I was uh, in Iran, um, it was really tough. We had to find ways to to survive. Our souls were getting so depleted by both being attacked from the external sources, which was the uh, 
the uh, Iraq, Iraq, Iraqi forces were attacking us. And then from within, from the crackdown of uh, the regime um, goons. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, storytelling and, and, uh, and poetry was a soul saver of yeah. sorts. When I would talk to writer, I taught writing um, and journalism and, and long form. And one of the things we would talk about was the Middle East, because in America, we know the Middle East is a very specific kind of thing, basically from like 90 on, which is like almost nothing. And I would show pictures from like the early 70s of Iran and Iraq. And I'm like, what you guys, what you kids today think these places are like, that is that is not the way they were sort of in the 60s and 70s is that they were not there wasn't the wars that we that have both happened over there and that then we have gone over and done and it always amazed me that the it amazed me but not really that they just had no idea right like that most americans don't really have an idea of the middle east and and what that is outside of the wars that we have conducted there mm -hmm. and you know the the covert operations like in 1953 uh iran had a democratic government their oil was rash, uh, nationalized and my grandmother had coupons and she was investing in in the oil as a as a teenager and then what then uh, the cia staged a coup and before you know it the shah was installed the shah of iran and there was this huge resentment and and distrust of the West because of this. So, so the the hostage crisis was not you know didn't happen in a vacuum. Yeah, this was decades of people suffering, and on top of that, new CIA uh, leak. Or I think I don't think they're even leaked. They the documents show they just you know put it out for public that. Uh, um, uh, Imam Khomeini was was in touch with the CIA. Yeah, and, you know, so he, he comes in and takes over and starts this uh, revolution and the Islamist way of Sharia law, and uh, and then kind of tells America to go screw themselves. <laughs> yeah, it's just it is it's it's fascinating to me. It just in an intellectual way, which I realize is different than the way you've experienced it, but that just how little we know here for as involved in all of the all the ways in which we have been involved in all over the world. Right. Like we really like America just has this inability to understand its presence in these places and its impact in these places and its place in other people's history as if we, that is not a thing. Um, so you're like, you're young when this has happened. Like, what was, what do you have like brothers and sisters? Like, what were you, what was it like growing up? Like, it was, um, well, I had to literally sit on the back of the bus as a woman. So this is my reality. That's how it changed. My best friend was a boy and I couldn't play with him anymore because I was against this strict Sharia law. Um, uh, we had two sets of lives. You hear about code switching here. We had an entire life switching where we, when we went outside of the house, we had to have a certain demeanor. We had to, I couldn't laugh as a girl. I couldn't bring attention to myself. I couldn't jog. Um, I had to wear hijab. And, uh, and then anything, and then sometimes it would just be random. Like your neighbor would, 
be taken away or your friend or and we wouldn't know well what did i do did they did they have a set up backgammon did they have alcohol did they say something wrong did they have uh, some papers from you know some propaganda from oppos opposition in their possession or was it just someone that decided that uh, they just they you know they wanted to uh, have revenge for no reason at all on yeah. them so so there was this, this kind of like a wheel of misfortune that would just you would turn it and someone would get um get unfortunately taken away and executed and that was so demoralizing so horrific and it was a, certainly an act of terror and then on top of that the bombs were falling and the missiles were, were falling so and then so how long were you guys there i was there till i was 14. so that was you had like eight eight or nine years post exactly like yeah. you were coming of age like literally coming of age underneath all of it. like your first memories and then yeah and the and so there you know how trump instated the uh, banned nations in uh 2017 um iran was a, an official banned nation long before that in the 80s and uh you know the the different countries of the world would not grant Iranian refugees visas. So people had to scramble. They married their very young daughters to very old men so they could get them out of the country. They would um, pay smugglers hefty sums. And then the smugglers would say, all right, you run in a zigzag pattern uh, from the Iran border to Turkey border in case you get shot at, you have a better chance to live. And they would uh, have other smugglers would have people walk on hand on their all on all fours to um, belt yeah, and get dressed like a sheep. So they would blend as uh, sheep sheep for the sheep herders to take them to the uh, to the Turkey border, and they would try to seek asylum there. My mother had a different idea. She's a poet, and she wrote as a Hail Mary pass, a, uh, a poem about India's Independence Day and submitted along with our visa application to the embassy of India. And uh, the Indian ambassador must have liked the poem because he granted us a visa to India. And in India, because we have no diplomatic relations, we haven't had them since forever, uh, Iran and the US, we, um, there was no embassy in Iran. So we had to secure a uh, meeting with the American consulate. And then I got a visa there. Uh, miraculously, this was so miraculous to, to get a visa. You have no idea how many millions of people tried yeah. something similar to, to get there. So a poem literally saved my life. And but then the catch was that my parents came here, uh, came to the US. And my sister was still in Iran because that's the condition, you, you know, there was like a bit of a family separation thing going on. You couldn't all travel at the same time. Yeah. So um, my parents left me and they went back to be with my sister in Iran. And where did you stay? 
I stayed with, uh, I landed in New Mexico, a very kind American family took me in for a while. And, uh, and then my uh, brother who had left Iran at the, right before the revolution for, for you know, as an exchange student, and then he couldn't go back to yeah. Iran uh, for 10 years. So I hadn't seen this man for 10 years. And then we ended up living together for a while too. It's, I had uh, an author, Ava Oma, on, um, who wrote, who's Kurdish and wrote one of the first Kurdish books in English. And we talked mm-hmm. about how she got out of, and it was a similar kind of story where she was basically low-key on the run from the government. Like the government wasn't hunting her down, but they were looking for people. And so everything she did had to be off the books until she got out. And it was like 10 years. I mean, it took her, like, I think, like about a decade to get out. That must have been... Um, as you look back on that, how, like, how do you even put something like that in context? Because at the time, it just feels normal because you're a kid and that's that's the way kids experience stuff. But then you get older and you have to look back on that and have all kinds of emotional and uh, mental health thoughts about that. Oh, yeah. And, and I would tell you, even as a kid, I knew something was terribly wrong. I was like, this is not right. I was... I had these very strong feminist ways that that I, you know, I was a proponent of women's rights, and I was seeing what was happening around me. I was like, this, this is just not right. None, none of this is right. None of yeah. this feels right. So, so even though I couldn't maybe articulate it or put my finger on it, I knew that this was not the way that people should treat each other. And what's interesting is that. I think um, Afghanistan, the Taliban were taking notes at this time. And, uh, and they were like, oh, there is a viable government and they're able to completely a viable governing body that, that can ha- have strict Islamist views and uh, impose that on, on the people and be successful. So they even took it a notch further with their own way of treating women and freedom of expression and uh, as an <clears throat> as an adult and as someone in in on the border i deal i work with refugees and i meet a lot of afghan um, i've met a lot of afghan women who were Ill- illiterate because the taliban would not let them um, read or write and they were so traumatized by the way that they were treated as property, basically, that um, when I asked them, how's your English classes are going, they would say, oh, I, we're just dumb. I, we don't, we were stupid. We don't learn anything. We can't learn anything. It's, um, and, I, and I speak um, Farsi, Dari, which is their language yeah. as well. Uh, so they were... So I, I, and I, and I, it just made me pause for a moment and say to them, my God, you have been through a lifetime of horror. Of course, your brain is just, you know, still trying to process all of this and doesn't have room for learning. Um, so just, just be kind to yeah. yourself. You know, yeah, so it's that. the, you know, I taught, this is again, there's a Venn diagram. It is a very different, it is a different experience, but I taught in, before I did all this in the, um, in cities 
uh, middle school and high school. And, and, and I primarily taught kids that were failing out of school, kids that had lives at their homes that were maybe not as stable as other places. And you just learn very quickly, like Maslow's hierarchy of being is very real. And if you're worried about shelter, safety and food, there's not anything you don't get to that other stuff. You don't get to things like self-actualization because you are literally living not an animal brain, but in that like survival mode. And when you do that for a long enough time, even when you're safe, you're never really out of that mode that stays with you forever. It's really hard to get rid of that. Um, it is. It takes, and it, again, it, it takes so much support. It takes yeah. so much of individual work and then the support of the community and yeah. the, this consistency of safety and, yeah. and, uh, and, and routine that, that would, yeah, like, you know, all of a sudden your world is not going to fall apart again. And I see this in, uh, in schools now post-pandemic or not post-pandemic yeah. 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 kids are having such a hard it's so similar like I talk to 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 teachers and they and I and they tell me what's going on I'm like yeah you're first responders now you know this is you're in a, this is a disaster this is yeah. a situation of disaster so um maybe the learning is not so much at the the top of your agenda but to just make sure that the kids make it through the day yeah and like that i guess that's what i was sort of trying to get to is that like i think we're just now as a society at least here in the country beginning to understand the long-term impacts of trauma and what trauma is right like trauma isn't just violence like trauma is also living under fear living like not like not knowing if you're safe like that builds up in your body in ways that prevents so many things from you being able to do just because right like it's it's a and it cannot be unwound it is a i tell people it's a chronic condition for the rest of your life and you need a lot of support to be okay mm -hmm. and so many people um are are going are in that situation now and i've been working with with uh refugees who've, who've endured severe trauma and you know they've been isis sex slaves for example or uh, kids who lost their speech during the syrian war and one of the things that i've been doing with refugees and i still do with asylum seekers is um, i have a um, drum and dance party mm -hmm. and uh, and it's so counterintuitive but this is what was denied to me as a child. Yeah. The uh, dancing and singing and music was a coping mechanism, and there was a war on our coping mechanisms. So, uh, because we couldn't partake of that. But it turns out that uh, just moving and listening to music that you love and, uh, and being in that, uh, just letting your body move as a in a somatic way can really help depression, anxiety, yeah. and effects of PTSD. So uh, when when the pandemic happened and I couldn't go to Tijuana to, to visit with the asylum seekers and dance with them, they asked me if I could do a Zoom program. And I did, and this is what I'm doing weekly, is, is, uh, is we, I'm in my living room here. <laughs> And I dance and they and I watch them dance. I, I just have we have this connection. 
And it's like when we dance, you know, I tell them your kids start to feel safe because you're letting your hair down and you mm-hmm. have a sense of belonging together. And, and we are very culturally sensitive. So, so this is like music that you grew up with and you love and you had good memories with are such a beautiful way to connect to, to a beautiful spacious sanctuary within yourself that all is safe. Um, and some part of this is, is when I was writing my novel, I really um, tapped into this. It's like, yeah, I yeah. want to go ahead and um, talk about the or, or uh, describe and, and show the trauma that one can go through, but also a way out of it too. And there is also so much beauty as all this stuff is going on. And it takes a shift of focus back and forth and oscillation of sorts between what's terrible and then what's beautiful. Yeah. And I mean, it's, here's the dog. Uh, It's not surprising, right? Like having an art, having a poet mother, like art was very clearly a part of your life growing up and understanding the importance of that. And again, this is one of those things that I think we're starting to realize culturally that art is really important like yeah it may not be a career right like and it's hard to make a career out of that but having a life without those things in it is really hard to do so so much (laughs) of what we do is that um i'm not a i'm not interested in the technique or aesthetics of dance but just kind of moving to what you're feeling at the moment that's all it takes, you know? And I'm in, tra- I've talked about it on the show. I've been in trauma therapy for five years for, you know, different reasons, but like having a freedom to be out of your body and out of your mind. And I don't mean like, cra- I didn't mean like just being able to do and just move and experience and cry and laugh without worrying about other stuff is just cathartic in a way that's hard to explain until you experience it. Mm-hmm. Because it's all stirred in the body and it's so, so much, it's such an intelligent way to go about it, you know, because the the mind can just spin it into these really weird um, (laughs) (laughs) ways that that just traps you inside of this this conundrum, whereas your body is like, oh, screw this, I'm going to let it all go. (laughs) Yeah, I have a friend of mine that does a thing called dance church and literally it is all they do. I don't know. I don't know if you know about it. I had never heard of it. And Mm. she posts stuff and literally they just get together and put music on. And they're the people that run it. were all trained dancers. And they're like, yeah, we do no choreographed stuff here. Like you just come in, we turn on the music and we're going to dance for an hour. And that's Mm -hmm. what they do. There's no talk. It's just this movement and flowing for an hour. And it looks amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, um, I interviewed a woman who is doing dance sessions in prisons, in women's prisons, correctional oh, yeah. facilities. Uh, you know, I've, and I wrote several articles about, you know, the power of dance and music and, you know, so, so much of my own experience. I have danced with thousands of refugees, <laughs> you know, so, so I see that, uh, you know, we, we even drummed our feelings, you know, like, okay, you don't want to put it to words and we have language barriers anyways. How does, how does this feel? And then people would drum it and then, uh, or one person would drum it and everyone else would, would repeat the drum like an yeah. affirmation. I hear you. This is what it feels. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it just is so, and then this would 
uh, go on and would have a resolution at the end and yeah. there would be a dry eye in the house. Yeah, it's, it, it, that does not surprise me because again, it is that release. When I started trauma therapy, my therapist made me read this book, which I'm sure you're familiar with called The Body Keeps Score. And mm -hmm. I was like, ah, you know, I don't know. And I read it and I was like, I don't know about the science of all of it, but I'm like, everything I read in that book feels right. Like I recognized everything that I saw in that. And I was like, oh, that was the sort of opening of my mind that it was like, okay, therapy isn't just how do I deal with, like, how do I bring the, the trauma down so that I can act like a person? It's also, how can I release this? How can I find who I am and my voice and all those things we talk about with self-actualization? Like you just sort of leave yourself behind and you have this, oh, I'm part of something bigger. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't have to just be what's in my head. Mm -hmm. That's so beautiful. And yeah, and one of the other things that we do is, is uh, savoring. I, I wrote an article about it called Sa when savoring a pleasant moment is a radical act. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great title. And, and it's uh and this is like based on my experience as a kid, which, which was like, there was such a war on joy that uh, we had to find, it's like, oh, wow, we can't, we can't have joy. So how can we, but there's all this wonderful, abundant, infinite, and always available resources for us. Like the just breathing, you know, this air, especially in the time of COVID, when it's, <laughs> Yeah. so abundant and infinite as far as our limited bodies are concerned and just taking some nice lungfuls of air and just noticing what's beautiful is is such a transformative tiny little act it's like you were transforming moments by moment and, and yeah it just and that's kind of uh one trauma uh, expert I spoke with, uh, Peter Levine, I don't know if you know him. Mm -hmm. uh, he, uh, he was talking about how the, uh, when we increase the capacity for, for joy, we also increase the capacity for challenges and suffering. Uh, so that's one way to, to uh, um, get all the emotions that are, that would get, our body would get so maxed out and so uh, bogged down with with trauma one way we can increase that capacity is to when things are good really savor them when when you're actively dealing with your own trauma you what you just said rings so true to me which is that you you find joy in it you find the moments of joy that happened in it and and suddenly the further I get away from my own stuff, the more I can go back and go, you know, instead of thinking that that whole thing is awful, there were actually moments in there where I was happy, right? And then I can connect that to moments that are happy now. Mm, and it helps that's me. so smart, yeah. I mean, that's Tara, my therapist. Like, that is all... <laughs> But, but it's so true. Every time we every time we recall something, we change it a little bit. Yes. So, so why not? Yeah. Why not have that perspective? What did, what did the, where was the light coming in? What kind yeah. of shoes was I, were, was I wearing? What, uh, what did the sky look like? Or, you know, like all of those things ground you in, in a, in, in a way that you can experience the, the terrible things in a much more present and, and uh, 
um, wonderful way when you're thinking about the, the yeah. trauma. I mean, what what my therapist said was it, it'll never make it go away, but it will keep you from having that make the decisions for you today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you do come back to when you are in that moment, and this is just a very when you are in that moment and not when the trauma happens, when when you're yeah. in the arc yeah. on the other side and yeah. seeing the, the beauty in it, there is a uh, Rumi poem, which is so perfect for this verse. And it says, um, and that means, did you know that your suffering is your treasure? Did you know your suffering is your treasure? Alas, you are the veil covering your treasure. Uh, that's going to make me cry. It's what a gift to be able to like had the experiences and then be able to sort of begin to frame that and use that and dance and the and the work that you do and the writing to to use that as a again as a part of light. But there is some joy and goodness that comes out of it's one of those reminders about humanity that no matter how bad the bad guys are, and there's always bad guys, we get to make choices as as to not letting that stop us. Mm -hmm. And there's so many amazing, wonderful people too. It's not just there's way I, more I, of the good. There's way more of the good people than the bad people. Way yeah. more. I'm a hundred percent convinced of that. Mm. And with, with that, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to come back. And we're going to talk about uh, after you got, you know, once you got here, sort of what life was like. And I want to get into the writing and the work that you do. Um, so we'll be back in just a, in a minute. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. 
And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. All right, so uh, as always, we just had a fascinating... uh... GZM Shows and the creators of Six Minutes are rolling out their newest audio adventure with the podcast Discovering Dad. A cautious single dad with a secret past and his rebellious kids embark on a thrilling quest complete with hidden treasure, villains, and a family curse. New episodes of Discovering Dad roll out weekly starting June 11th on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show so you never miss an episode. Or listen early and ad-free as a GZM Show subscriber. Go to gzmshows.com to learn more. Discussion about uh, the world and people and media, of which you guys will hear none of it, but it was great. Um, so when last we left, you would just, um, you would come here. You're like, we were 14 or 15 when you arrived in New Mexico. Yes, 14. And, uh-huh. and then your parents, like, they left immediately. They went back. Yep. And so what was that, again, like, that must have been a difficult transition, which is the word. I mean, that's an understatement. There is a specific pain that refugees understand that is just specific to them. It's to be ripped away from everything that's familiar to you, that you love, that you um, absolutely adore. And the language, the the climate, the air that you breathe is different. And and home is no longer home because you can you don't want to go back home uh you would every cell of your body longs to go back to where you came from yet yeah you're you're like there's no way i'm going back (laughs) at the same time so there is a war that happens inside of your own body inside of your own soul and it's devastating it's absolutely devastating um, and people think that, you know, people who take refuge, asylum seekers and such, they uh, they don't, they hate their country. They don't want to go back. That's just not a shithole country. It is actually, they love to go back. Every refugee and asylum seeker that I've talked to, they're like, oh, what I wouldn't give to go back. You know, yeah. I, I, I wish things would be different so I could go back and just touch the earth that I came from. Yeah. So that's uh, 
that's what I was going on for me. And, uh, and I was, of course, nine years of trauma and just, you know, it took a long time before my ears stopped listening to the sound of someone being hauled away by the authorities or uh, the listening for the sound of the bombs or missiles. Yeah. It took, uh, uh, then my eyes stopped flitting about for spies that would perhaps be watching me. Yeah. It takes a long time. Luckily, my body knew what to do. And as I mentioned, I danced a lot. And that was so healing for me. I didn't understand it at the moment. But uh, but it was doing all the things that we discussed, you know, decreased anxiety and depression and, uh, and helped, helped in a tremendous way. It's one of those things like, I mean, that thing that you just said is so profound that your body knew, right? And like, the the ability to listen to your body. I mean, we always talk about that. I I was an athlete. So they always say like, listen to your body. It'll tell you what to do. And But then when you really start to think about that and do the kind of thing that you're talking about, like listening to your body, it's so important. So important because it will help you figure your way through. Even like you said, when your mind didn't know why it was doing that. Mm -hmm. Is that a thing that you've reflected on? Like as you've gotten older and as you've written and as you've worked with people like, what a gift that is to have that ability absolutely and uh and that's one of the reasons i joined musical ambassadors of peace these uh the founders right after the iraq invasion they went to iraq and they wouldn't give them a visa they were at the border and they said where's your visa and they said here it is and they took out their oud which is the uh, middle eastern guitar and, and they started singing Iraqi love songs and the people let them in and they started singing Iraqi love songs on the street of Baghdad and people were floored. They said, oh my God, you don't, you're not here to bomb us. You're not here as military contractors to make money off of us. And they said, no, we're just here to learn more about you, about your culture and take it back to the people of America. And so this was such a beautiful thing. They called themselves reverse missionaries. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. They wanted, they're like, we're not here to preach. We're here to just hear your stories with you, learn your culture and take it to, to the, as edutainment to people of the U S. And so I joined with them and we had a few concerts and I was, uh, I would do these stylized poetry and uh, po- and uh, stories about my own childhood during war. And I would uh, burst into these ecstatic roomy poems and with musical accompaniment and dancing. And then when the Muslim ban happened, I started running drum and dance circles for Iraqi, Syrian, Afghan, and Iranian refugees. And uh, then, um, so, so this was, again, something that was denied to me as a child, music and dancing, and I was able to bring it to other refugees, and I really longed for a sense of community, a sense of belonging. That's something I didn't have as a kid, so yeah. this brought those two things together, so, so it was really beautiful, and I've been doing it since. The only experience that I have is that I had to I had to leave my I had to leave Appalachia because there just there wasn't a lot for me there. And I love it. I'm actually in northern Appalachia, but like where my family's from and all of that stuff. 
you know, most of my family was murdered now. Like we, we don't go back. Um, and there is, but I do that. I, I understand it in the only way that I can, that longing to go back and that longing for connection and that longing for community about people that just know, right. Where you don't have to code switch, where they just sort of intrinsically understand things about what you're saying and what you're doing. Is that, do you think, is that like, why did you start writing? Was writing a way for you to like begin to put some of these stories down and, and sort of way to you to think about these things? Like, mm -hmm. yeah. So um, for the first few years, the first, first of all, I memorized 300 English words a day. Oh my God. <laughs> because it's, it was so terrible. Not only I was in so much pain, but I couldn't even talk about it to yeah. anyone. I just wanted to tell people how I ached and, and I had no words. So, um, so I learned English quite quickly and, uh, and then poured in all of myself into assimilating to the culture. And some of that meant that I had to let go of my poetry. Uh, that I grew up with. In Iran, we use poems in conversations, in resolving conflicts, in every day. There's not a day that goes by that a poem is not uttered. And of course, here is just not similar yeah. to that at all. No. So, so um, sometime later, maybe a decade later, I started having the, this intense longing for, for my poetry. And it was like a long lost beloved. So I would just be at a gathering and I would just burst into a poem in Farsi and people would just look at me and I, uh, to my surprise, they didn't say, oh my gosh, she's crazy. Let's get her out of here. <laughs> <laughs> they said, that is just gorgeous. Tell me what it means. Yeah. So I started translating what I was uh, so up to this point, a lot of the popular translations of Rumi's poetry are by white men who don't speak Farsi. So <laughs> as often is the case in Western culture. <laughs> yeah. So so when people would say, "Oh, is it this is a, this Rumi poem?" You know, tell me about it. You know, can you recite it in Farsi? I was like, "That's not a Rumi poem. I'm sorry." <laughs> That's maybe it was inspired by there's, but there's nothing that I can point to that would say this is Rumi or this is Hafez. So, um, so I started translating my own and I would have these calligrams of, uh, which is, I'll show you this one, is um, these um, paintings that would be uh, words turned into images. And, you know, so because translation is just not exactly the same yeah. as you know, the original, wonderful, beautiful language. And so, so this was another way to do that. So then I uh, had a series of these paintings and I was doing these translations and I turned them into oracle cards uh, as, a, as a way of bridging the Western tarot and the Eastern oh, Middle East. How old were you when you were doing this? This is just, um, I did this in 2018. Oh, so like, this has been a, like a journey of like, so this is like, you started doing this as like, as, when you came over here, like learning the stuff, and then you started translating when? 
Um, probably about 26, you know, like I, I was just not into any of this. I was, I studied molecular biology and, and didn't think writing was, was writing technical papers <laughs> in grad school, but not, you know, poetry or anything yeah. like that. So, well, this is what I was getting at. I'm like, at some point there was like a gap of like, so what, what brought you to that? Was it, I mean, 2016 was obviously a very specific time in this country's history. <laughs> that, that was it. That okay. was a specific time. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> it, it was some like, really bad shit went down. Some bad shit went down and I was, um, and people wanted to hear a Middle Easterner's perspective. So uh, I wrote a few op-eds and they became quite popular mm -hmm. and other editors started um, contacting me about the about you know to to get my perspective and then I started actually doing some investigative journalism I I reported on separated kids for example I uh, covered the border crisis I wrote for um yeah. the, the Guardian and Vice and and um I mean it's a it's a fairly radical switch like it was not a thing that you had planned on doing it at all no that was not <laughs> something that I, that I thought was I was just kind of, um, you know, I was translating for school districts and for Rosetta Stone and and uh, doing some completely different things. Yeah, at one point in my life, I was a carpenter's apprentice and and I was uh, teaching a um, pilot uh, who took who did disaster relief um, Farsi and he taught me flying lessons. So it was like, I was in like stuff that were just completely <laughs> different. <than laughs> I was a meditation teacher and a martial arts uh, instructor. So, so it was my life had, um, after I found that I didn't wanna be doing cancer research, and I didn't wanna be in business, in the biotech business either. Uh, everything just kind of opened up to to uh, <laughs> possibilities. Okay, that's a turn. That is a turn in a career, mm -hmm. like uh, well-respected careers into uh, being a writer, which is you know, like not nearly a, as well-respected. Yeah, that's a rough. It's a rough road. So when you write, <laughs> when you write, then you write a book. Like you are somebody that like this is not a thing that you would plan on doing, and then what was that experience like i love this question like i never talk about process on this show but almost every writer i've ever interviewed did not know how to write a novel when they started writing a novel like they mm -hmm. were just like it was a thing i wanted to do and then i got into it and was like oh my god i don't know what i'm doing right right yeah <laughs> so um i met my husband in 2006 and we uh um as a uh I don't know, as, as part of our courtship, we wrote this uh, screenplay together. I had never written, he had written a few screenplays and we placed it in a, in a uh, couple of contests and it got to the semifinals and finals. Wow. And we, we shelved it. And in 2017, I took that <laughs> uh, script and I turned it into a novel that is. <laughs> And so how did that, like, how was that? Like when you sat down, were you, was it like, you had never written a novel, like not like, I'm assuming you hadn't studied, you don't have an MFA, right? Like you didn't, you didn't go learn all this stuff. Like, so like, you can't just say I sat down and do because every writer that's listening is like, well, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I'm a late bloomer, and uh, and it uh, it just it you, again. I this was not my dream. This was not. I was never like, oh, I want to be a writer when I grow up. I always was a avid re reader, but it wasn't until 2017 that I actually was like, I'm doing this, and I wrote you know like 80,000 words in a month kind of a thing. Oh my God. So you said like this story was coming out of you. It was so coming out of me. The characters were uh, coming to my dreams and telling me their stories. And, and so I had to write it all down. You know, I've, I've always told people like when I write, I'm just recording the movie that's in my head. I do nonfiction stuff, but like you do enough thing, like suddenly you get the thing and I, and I can, when I'm ready to write and I can't keep up with the movie. Like I, I write a ton because I'm like, what's well, just going faster than I can. Yes, write. yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> 80,000 words in a month is manically crazy. Mm, it was uh, it was pretty intense. Luckily, I had the time and space to do it. Um, and uh, and yeah, I did it. And uh, and then <clears throat> I had a few uh, several revisions, many, many revisions. And uh, yeah, and I. And I had a, uh, there was a contest that I entered as a, uh, for mentorship. And my, one of my favorite living writers was the mentor and she picked me. Wow. Tremendous. Renee Denfeld, her book, The Enchanted is one of my all time favorite books. And, <clears throat> and so I started, uh, she, she helped me with uh, getting some of the structure and some of the ways of grounding the, the experience in in uh in something that was really vivid and so after that i uh yeah i got i got it published yeah and, and so that was that like that was your you had the mentor that helped you go through because there's always some moment where it's like well i got this thing now i need to figure out how to turn this into a novel <laughs> so is that a thing you're going to continue doing or was this like a one shot and you're like i, I think i'm done um, writing comes quite easily to me. I would. You're not making friends on this show right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, but I mean, I'm I'm not one of those people who's who has a writing practice or whatever. Like, yeah. I go into bursts and I produce something and I put it aside and then, or I get an assignment from an editor and I and I uh, write write it. Um, and, and then I, I kind of just go about my life and yeah. until the next thing happens, but yeah, it's, uh, it's not, it's, I, I mean, I would do something else if it came as easily as writing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, there are so many people that are listening right now that are just shaking their head. They're like, explain this coming easy to me thing. Like this is, I do not understand this at all. I but think. I have no idea because a lot of it is, I'm sure, luck and it has nothing to do with me. But nope, we don't but... let that happen on this show. That's luck is not a thing. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> but I, what I do is that, that I honor the fallow state. The fallow state is so sacred to me. I don't yeah. have to constantly be producing. So when I do that, that compost gets really rich and then something bursts out. Yeah. On its own. And, and I also have uh, such a kind uh, inner critic, such a kind and wonderful, like, yeah, it's my, the best ally I could have. So, um, 
I don't get, um, it's not anything that, that uh, harms me. The, the inner critic is very helpful. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, I think it's one of the things that once you sort of come through trauma and have dealt with it and processed it, I think that is an outcome of that. Like when people talk about doing the work on themselves, I'm like, I think that's one of those things. Yeah, and, and it's more like the voice that comes out is like, how can I support you? Yeah. Rather than, oh, you did this so wrong. You <laughs> scary. You know, yeah. like, none of that occurs, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so a girl called Rumi is out now. Yeah, it's out. It's available. It's people can go get it anywhere. Like it's online and Amazon bookshop, it, all the places. Is. Yep. Uh, and you're continuing to do your work with the dance stuff. I am. Is yes. that like, is that volunteer or is that, is that like also part of the sort of job stuff that you do? Um, it's a little bit of both. Yeah. I do plenty of volunteering with the Tijuana and the, um, uh, Mexicali shelters and then I'm about to start dancing with the Haitian refugees here and Afghan refugees who have just uh, are coming to settle in San Diego too. Um, it is you are just delightful and charming and I appreciate you dealing with uh, Luna or Lola my crazy border dog who you all can't see but about every 15 minutes she decided to jump up on the desk while we were having this interview because she was very interested in what you were saying. Um, she's absolutely adorable she really is like this that's how dogs get away with it um, but you are delightful um i appreciate you sharing your story with me um and i just i love um i love your spirit and your light and it's been a joy talking to you for an hour it's been an absolute pleasure brad i'm so glad i got to know you a little bit and your your lovely crazy dog too <laughs> Oh, you're so kind. Thank you so much. You have a good day. You as well. Thank you. Well, there you have it. That was Ari Anavar, whose book, A Girl Called Rumi, is out right now. And uh, like I said, uh, fucking delightful and charming. And you lean in when you listen. And she also, like, is so... Like her voice is so kind and soft-spoken. And then she talks about these like really hard things and you're just riveted. I'm just riveted uh, during that conversation. And and one of the uh, things that you don't know, uh, what you are happy about is that, that most of the time, the only thing I take out of the program is me. And there was um, a lot of conversation that, that didn't make it into the program for a variety of reasons. Uh, and I just, I found myself both listening to her for long stretches and then like wanting to talk to her, like, and then like wanting to share my stuff. So thinking about the work that she does with kids and people in refugee camps, like I, I can just tell you firsthand, just talking, we did not dance, uh, but just talking, you can tell, like she has this ability to help connect with people and like create this empathetic bond. Uh, so I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I loved having it. I hope that you will go uh, buy her book and follow uh, the work that she does. Before we get out of here, a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, I ask you to do a couple things at the top of the show. I'm going to remind you about them now. Let your friends know about us, particularly your book-loving friends, and leave us a review either through Apple Podcasts or over at the Facebook page at the Writer's Jam. Don't forget to check out all the other programs on the Solid Listen Network. Malls and Nicole are busting their ass and building this thing out. 
Uh, and it's Christmas time, and it's a really good time to check out the flagship program, Mother May I Sleep With Podcast, with host and our solid listen podcast queen, Molly McLear. The video podcasts come out on the Solid Listen Network YouTube channel. You can also catch them at theridersjam.com, or you can catch the audio version of those shows right here on this channel. And remember, the jam, which you just listened to, comes out every Wednesday. So there's a lot of stuff happening on this channel, and the surest way not to miss anything is to get yourself subscribed wherever you listen to podcasts. Remember, you can also always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at... The Writer's Jam. Until the next time, I will see you around the internet. Talmor is my home. My family have worked the land for generations. My gran says the island does not belong to us, but we belong to the island. And we must be ready for a great evil is coming. And death follows with it. Listen and subscribe to the latest season of Undertow, The Harrowing, a story glass production presented by Realm, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Alexis Ohanian. You may know me as one of the co-founders of Reddit, but more recently, a large part of my identity is being a father to my two wonderful daughters. In my podcast, Business Dad, I'm hoping to open up the conversation about balancing careers and family. The one thing I constantly hear successful people say, without fail, is that they wish they'd spent more time with their kids. That's time no one can get back. So I decided to create Business Dad to engage in the conversation about how we're spending our time now providing a forum for successful dads to share their joys and challenges of being a working parent. You'll get to hear from a wide range of business dads, from Rain Wilson and Guy Raz to Todd Carmichael and Shane Battier. And while this podcast will talk about business and will definitely be featuring dads, I think everyone can learn something from these incredible conversations as we unpack the expectations we all have about careers, relationships, and ourselves. Business Dad is available now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.